One of the fun things about sitting down front, and especially down front right over here, is early in the service when the kids are here, you get to see Nora. And I'm telling you what, if we all worshipped like Nora worshipped this morning, this place would be on fire. It would be, it'd be crazy, all right? I, I can see a couple of you out there. If I saw you doing what she was doing, I'd get a little worried. But it was a sweet time, and it was sort of bookended by Madison coming up and singing. As Madison gets ready to head off to, um, to Utah to serve there as an intern with Tri-Grace Ministries, we're excited for her and praying for her, as well as we've got a whole lot of college students sitting here this week that probably won't be sitting here next week unless they skip, you know, skipped out and came home fast. Um, but pray for them as they head out. So we're very grateful for that. This morning, if you have your Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, we encourage you to pick up a Bible or open your phone and get a Bible there. But you would turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Our elder Rob um, read to us there from 1 Peter 5, 8 through 11, moments ago, and that's where we'll be. You don't hear much talk about the devil, at least not in relation to real life. He's portrayed in operatic productions, he's portrayed in TV shows, he's portrayed in movies and stories, hundreds of them, with all kinds of names given to him from Cade in the Vampire series, Nick, Old Scratch, Damian Thorne, Lucifer, Lucifer Morningstar. I mean, you get all kinds of names that he's portrayed as. Seems like we're fine with the idea of Satan. We just don't want to think about that idea in relation to how we live life. Some of you maybe are uncomfortable right now. Maybe you're a guest. Maybe you have a guest. And you're thinking, oh dude, he is talking about the devil. Isn't that sort of mythical? Isn't that sort of just legend, right? That's just, that's just awkward. Well, in general, Americans have discarded this idea of Satan as a real being. And in fact, we have so put the idea aside of a real being, Satan, that instead we've created surrogate Satans. We've created surrogate Satans by demonizing people who differ from us in politics and culture. And this is dangerous. This is dangerous on a whole lot of levels. For one, it minimizes who Satan really is, right? If all he is is a different political ideology, then Satan's really not that bad. Honestly, if you think that's the worst, then you've missed out on who Satan really is. But also to ignore the reality of Satan is to deny the trustworthiness of Scripture. Because God's Word says that he is real, right? But finally, to ignore this reality of Satan is to leave ourselves vulnerable for his destroying influence. In our passage today, Peter alerts the believers to this deadly adversary. Read again with me 1 Peter 5.8. He says, be sober-minded, be alert, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Peter makes it clear the devil is real and he is a real adversary to all believers. If you're at war and you 
simply deny that your adversary is there, you're not setting yourself up for a whole lot of success. To deny that he is out there and actively seeking to destroy you simply makes you more, more vulnerable, right? Some dear friends, members here, Ron and Sandy Stern went on a safari before they, uh, we went into COVID shutdown here a couple years ago. And they share this story, and I hope I'm not spilling the beans for them. they probably like to share this story with all of you. But they, one morning, they were going from their, their tent, if you can call it that, it's really nice, um, up to where they're going to eat breakfast. And every morning, you had to signal for your guides to come get you at your, your tent, and they would walk you up. And they soon found out why. That particular morning, the, the guide sort of grabbed her and marched her right up, marched them right up to where they were going to eat. And they found out later told him, said, I did that because there's a lion around that's been seen around camp. You see, when there really is a real lion, it changes how you think. I dare say, if I told you, hey, when I came in this morning, I saw a rat running around in here. Um, I would bet a whole lot of you would be either one, getting out of here, or B, a whole lot of you'd be propping your feet up on the chairs in front of you. You would, you would respond differently, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I expected that more from another tone of voice. Um, <laughs> but nonetheless, the point is made, right? We would, we would think differently about it. But notice that Peter's answer to the reality of Satan as a deadly adversary is not to, hey, let's sit here and talk about Satan. Let's sit here and discuss who he is. Let's sit here and have a great theological discussion about Satan. He doesn't do that. Does he want us to be knowledgeable? Yeah. Does he want us to know that he is there and how he works? Sure. But the, the focus that he has is that he's calling for us to have the right manner of thinking and living. He wants us to have a confident wartime mentality, is what he's calling for. In the preface to the Screw Tape Letters, a book is not perfect, but I tell you, it's worth the read, right? If you've not read that classic by C.S. Lewis, um, in his preface, he wrote it this way There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the demons. By our race, he's talking about the human race. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. So our focus this morning is not going to ultimately be on Satan himself. We want to be alert. We want to be aware. We want to know that he is indeed a deadly adversary. But our focus is going to be on Okay, since that's true, how then shall we think? How then shall we live, right? Peter says the answer in, in, is found in your state of thinking and living. Because Satan is ravenously seeking to destroy whomever he can, however he can, whenever he can, the believer must be sober-minded. Now, what does that mean? Well, literally, we looked at this word back in, uh, in 1 Peter 1, verse 13, I believe, that that word sober-minded literally means not controlled by wine, all right? Not given to wine. 
the idea is it means for us to have our mind under control. That's what it's really about, is control. In Ephesians chapter 5, um, Paul, when referring to do not be controlled with wine or in as much excess, he said, instead be controlled by the Spirit. That's the focus here, is have your mind under control. Well, what does that look like? Well, if your mind is under control, it's not drawn away from all the other distractions, all the other deceptions, all the other dangerous paths that it can go down. Instead, it's fixed on what it needs to be fixed on. It's focused. It's viewing life appropriately, sober-mindedly. This is wise living. And if you're told that there's a, there's a, a lion in the building... You're going to think differently. You're going to act differently. You're going to probably get out of the building in that case. But you're, going to, you're certainly going to have a different mindset because you're wise. You can look and go, me versus... A, now, some of you, I know, some of you that, you know, you cross lifts, you're crossfit, so you probably, you'd take the line on, I'm sure. Um, but, but most of us would act wisely and... And Proverbs tells us in Proverbs 27, 12, that the prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it, right? So there's this kind of living is wise living. It looks at life, it looks at the situations of life, and it, and it acts accordingly. So that's one part of this kind of confident wartime mindset. But there's another part that he says. He says, be watchful, be watchful. So you're going to live a certain way. You're going to live in a sober-minded, wise way, of not going down dangerous paths that leave you vulnerable. But also you're going to be alert. You're going to be looking for those things, those occasions, those seasons, those situations that leave you especially, could leave you especially vulnerable, right? I'm not lifting up every stone to see if Satan's there, right? I'm not accusing every person that comes up against me. It's always attack of Satan, they're after me. Satan's after me. That's, that's not what we're doing. What we're going to do is we, we want to live in such a way that is, as he's going to describe later, a life of faith. The reality is this. When we're in the midst of especially difficult trials, when we're suffering, when significant spiritual persecution is coming, when there's physical, emotional, financial, or relational suffering or stress, it's easy to lose sight of God's sovereignty, God's care, right? And we lose our confident hope. And we bring those things up because just last week we were talking about humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in the right time. That's easy to say. That's a nice phrase. But when the suffering is coming, Right? It's easy to lose real sight of that. And you're like, man, I'm here alone. I, I'm just beaten down and tired. And all you, you, th- you lose sight of faith, you lose sight of trust, you lose sight of God, and all of a sudden, man, you feel like things are going to bottom out. Well, this, the, the, what Peter says is that the devil is like a roaring lion. You know what a roaring lion is? The idea there is it's a hungry lion. He is hungry. And he's never filled, okay? He's a hungry lion. 
But he also tells us that he's prowling about. This is not the first time in Scripture that we've seen this. This isn't Satan's first rodeo of prowling. He didn't start this in the New Testament. We can go back to Job chapter 1, verse 7, and see there. It says, The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down it. What was he doing? Looking to destroy. He's always been a destroyer, right? And the destroyer does what a destroyer does. He destroys. And he will do so however he can. <coughs> you, say, you see, it's while God is working in the midst of our suffering to work for our good, Satan seeks to leverage our suffering against us to cause us to despair, to cause us to give up, to cause us to lose faith in the one who has saved us. You see, he is prowling now like he prowled, prowled then in order to seek, kill, and destroy. While Christ came on a rescue mission, Satan has continually been on a destruction mission. And, and so we need to ask, who is it that Satan seeks to devour? You see, the fact that Satan is looking for someone to devour gives us the idea that there is certain people or at least situations in which we those people are more more sorry more vulnerable if you ever have watched the 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 videos on youtube of lions going after a bunch of zebras man they look for someone on the edge they're looking for the vulnerable the hurting the one who's gotten separated from the herd and they'll run in and try to separate him from the herd right and then they will gang up and take them out. Unless, of course, you know, the whole herd turns and you know, beats them down, which those are really fun. Um, <coughs> but the fact is, he is looking to take, take out people. But he is not om- omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He's not all-powerful. So he can't be everywhere at once. And so he is an opportunist looking for the right opportunity. And, and no, I don't think it's quite like Charlie Daniels wrote it. I don't think he was going to Georgia looking for a soul to steal, right? It's not as simple as beating Satan at a fiddling match, all right? It's much more difficult than that. It's much more daily than that. It's much more dangerous than that. He's not looking to broker deals, promising success for you if you'll simply give him your soul in the end, Right? Satan is a destroyer. He is hungry and active in his search. And while he seeks the destruction of souls, he delights in anything that mars the image of Christ in a being of of God's creation. You see, for believers, he can't take your salvation. But he will gladly hinder your sanctification, discourage you to the point of desperation, and break you to utter humiliation. He is after you, friends. There's a fantastic book by Randy Alcorn by Lord, called Lord Falgren's Letters. I highly encourage you to get a copy of it and read it. It's sort of the more modern version of Screwtape Letters, about four young people and a year in their lives where you sort of see behind the scenes of how Satan wants to destroy them. How He doesn't care how. Spiritually, physically, relationally, and take them out Take their life if they can. He's glad of all. He'll have it all if he can. 
But he's a destroyer. And, and frankly, he's seeking the unprepared. This is why Peter commands his readers to be alert, watch, and resist. A few examples of the unprepared. And this is by no means an exhaustive list. This list has, has gotten longer and shorter all week long. Um, as just have thought through Scripture and illustrations of Scripture. But I just want to quickly go through a few. And, and just because you don't see the one that maybe you struggle with on the list, I encourage you to continue to ask, to seek through the, the, the guiding of the Holy Spirit, Lord, where am I vulnerable? Where am I not walking by faith? And we'll go into that here in the next verse. But, but now, just very quickly, a few examples of the unprepared. First of all, the proud. We're warned in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that, that anyone who thinks he stands should take heed lest he fall. You, the proud are probably in the most precarious situation, but they think themselves the least, in, at, least vulnerable, right? Man, I've, I've, man, I read my Bible every day, you know? I'm in church every Sunday, I've, man, look at me. I, compared to those other people, look at how I serve. Look at my life. And, and man, they build themselves up as, as the greatest thing ever in the kingdom of God. But they also isolate themselves from the very power that they most desperately need. And therefore, they should humble themselves under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt them. You see, not only the proud, but also the unwitting. Proverbs refers to the unwitting as the naive. If you ever read through the Proverbs, you'll see a number of different, different things. You see the naive, and you see the fool, and you see the scoffer, right? And then you see the one who's wise in their own eyes, and there's more hope for a fool than one in their own eye who's wise in their own eyes. But the naive is this one back here, and the idea is, and nothing against you teenagers, but the idea is that it's written to young people who don't have a lot of life experience, Right? And, and so the naive is someone who hasn't lived a lot of life and doesn't understand a lot of life. And so they're just sort of going through and, man, life's all good and, and, and I don't know, fat and sassy and, and just going on and yet unaware, right? Man, that's dead meat. That's fresh meat for a lion, right? The naive just walking through, uh, walking through the jungle or the, the great wherever they live. They don't live in the jungle. Um, I have to be corrected by the Stearns. Um, it's pretty bad for a biology teacher, you know, former biology teacher. But the, the idea is that they are unwitting. And frankly, how are they unwitting? They're unwitting because they'll gladly follow their own desires wherever those desires lead them, and they're just living their life, right? This is just who I am. And that's a dangerous place because you know where your out-of-control desires lead? James tells us that your out-of-control desires lead to sin, and sin leads to death. Oh, well, that's exactly what the devil is after, is destruction. So we've got the proud, the unwitting, but you also have the deceived. In the midst of suffering, we may come to believe that there's no way that God cares. Or look at my suffering. My suffering is unlike anything anyone else has ever experienced. Could be that they feel like the most important thing in the midst of their suffering is simply escaping the suffering. Or my suffering is due to the lack of faith in my sinful past. And all those are deceptions, right? 
Because they tell us something, they, they lead us to believe something about God that isn't true. They lead us to believe something about our condition that isn't true. And it leads us to believe something about our future that isn't true, that it's hopeless, and it's not. Because if you're in Christ, you are secure. But you can begin to live like and think like you're not. And you can be desperate. You can feel alone and hopeless. And friend, those deceptions need to be answered with truth, and that's what he's going to come to. And we keep pointing forward to what's coming, but it's a faith issue. And we all struggle with faith issues, right? That's, an, that's a daily grind, is living by faith. It's not as though we choose it once and we're all good. You know, we're all filled up on faith for now to eternity. It's a daily grind. But also the discouragement that comes out of some of these other things, but when the hits just keep coming... Your health just gets worse. Then you have continual loss of loved ones. You have conflict in your marriage, financial strain that just doesn't seem to let up. When you have a wayward child, loss of a job or a job that just leaves you beaten down. Tonight, you're just, you are, it's the worst night of the week because you know you go to work tomorrow. When that just keeps coming and you are deeply discouraged, all you can think about is just giving up. The entangled. Galatians 6.1 tells us that there are those who are overcome in a fall. Sin overtakes you and you get entangled and you get so entangled that you see no way out. You add to that no way out feeling a bit of other stress and some persecution and pain and disappointment and this person will seek any way out. Maybe through catastrophic sin or, or even taking their own life. One of the more dangerous ones is the embittered, the one who is holding a grudge, one who won't let up and forgive. We're warned a couple times in Scripture, both in Hebrews as well as in Ephesians, that that's a dangerous place to be, <coughs> for it gives the devil a foothold. It lets a root of bitterness grow down in that grows up, and when it bears fruit, it defiles many, is the picture that it's given. You see, that's, that's a dangerous place because that's exactly where Satan wants to be. That's a destructive thing. It divides people. It, it, it hardens your soul. And all that is just ideal, ideal playing ground for one who wants to destroy you. 2 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11 says this, Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, I have, if I have forgiven anything has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, listen to this part, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. His designs is to, to steal, kill, and destroy, to divide and conquer. And if he can divide and conquer, and he can let you hold on to some bitterness and divide you from the very people that you need to be with, man, he's got you where he wants you. In other words, we don't want to participate in his work. We are to be wise, sober-minded, thinking right about it, and alert, and to, as Peter wrote next, resist him in verse 9. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You see, steadfast resistance is a singular ta tactic that is effective against the destroyer. Steadfast resistance. Keeping at it day after day after day. Be sober-minded. Keep being. Be alert. 
keep being, resist him, and keep resisting, right? But, but what does this look like? What, if, if really resisting is the only tactic that is effective against the destroyer, the destroyer then why did Brother Paul say flee? Well, let me answer that, because I think that it's one answer. We flee temptation when we stand firm in our faith. We are running to Christ and standing firm on his promises, on his word, hanging on to him. So we're fleeing to him. We're not fleeing the devil. We're resisting the devil. How do we resist him? We resist him firm in the faith as we run to Christ. Well, how do you specifically stand firm in the faith? Well, by looking to and holding on to the word and promises of God. Here's how Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13 say it. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And this is why you standing alone makes no sense. Because you don't have on your own the strength to do this. And you talking all cocky to Satan like, you get, you get behind me, Satan. You, Satan, you, you, just, you just stop it now. This kind of, I hear the kind of silly talk that people make against Satan when the real thing we want to do is simply to run to Christ and to wield the word, <coughs> right? It's not about you, clearly. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood against rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having to done all, having done all to stand firm. When you go to your workplace, when you walk in onto that college campus, when you go out into the world at large, you've got to understand it's not you versus them. It is, it is a, a cosmic work of Satan against the cosmic work of God that is, is going on behind the scenes. And I tell you what, it's a battle you will not be able to fight on your own. College student, you will not stand alone. Period. If you are not hanging tightly onto God and his word, you will fall. Adult, if you think you've had enough church and, buddy, I've kind of just got all I need. If you think that you can stand alone, you will fall. Friend, beware if you think you stand, lest you fall. Eve made the mistake that we all tend to make. We begin to live by sight and not by faith. You see, Eve questioned God's word in the garden, and that was at the core of the first sin. At the very core of all that is pleasing to God is faith, and that is how then we stand. We, why is it so pleasing? Because Hebrews eleven six does say, without faith it is impossible to please God. So why is that so pleasing? Why is that so important? Well, you see, in the middle of suffering, and especially you think about the early church forward, really, 
Christians have endured suffering, and it was expected that they would endure suffering because the way in which they thought and lived was so diametrically opposed to the culture in which they lived. And yet we're surprised. Surprise! The, the world doesn't agree with us. They want to pass laws that are, you know, antithetical to what we believe the Scripture says. Oh, man, how could they do this? We're so highly persecuted for the first time in history. No, that's to be expected. Don't act like it's something new and it's finally happening in, here in the 21st century. No, it's been happening. It happened to the apostles. It, it was happening all over the world at that time. And it's to be expected today, but what Paul didn't want them to think was that this was somehow, like we might, an anomaly. It was out of ordinary. Like the, the readers in First Peter are like, man, are we the only ones going through all this? Is it something we're doing? Is it something God thinks of us? Is it you know, and all this stuff that could lead to them being vulnerable? He's like, no, 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 no. You stand firm. Because it's happening all over the world to other people just like you. It's to be expected, right? So instead of that, he says, man, don't get hung up on what you see like Eve. But get hung up, hung up, or hang on to the truth that God has given you. That is pleasing. Why is it so pleasing again? What could be more pleasing to Almighty God that His creature, His creation would take him at his word and believe him. That his creature, that he lovingly created, would look to God and say, you say who you are, you tell us what you'll do, you tell us what you're going to do, and you do it, and we believe you. And he says, ah, oh, that's a wonderful thing. That's my child. He loves that. That's pleasing to God. But suffering is very real and raw. Suffering can be physical, psychological, and all these other things we've already described. And when we're faced with it, man, it's hard to trust. And so we have to continually keep turning in trust, keep resisting, keep turning. Again, the idea is not just of us, you know, just me and Satan, and I got my Bible like my sword, and it's me out here. No, it's me in Christ, right? And in Christ, hanging on to Him with all that I am, trusting that what He says is true. And with that mindset going forward, not, not in sense of, of arrogance, but in sense of confidence, like, hey, He's got this. Not I've got this, but my, my Lord has this. And I can be confident in that fact. And that's where He's going to go in the next verse. See, we're continuing, continuing to look forward Here's how Paul Gardner, the commentator, said. He said, this is all about turning constantly to God, even as attackers and temptations come, and realizing that the Lord is the one who is in control and who truly loves his people. You can believe all the lies of Satan you want, and he'll give you all the promises in the world. He'll make the biggest promises for the biggest things and the best things, the greatest success and comforts and pleasures of the world. And you may enjoy those pleasures and successes for the season, but with the end, there comes the poison and the bite, and that's destruction. But God tells us, no, we'll go through much suffering, but in the end, there's great reward. You see the difference? One is a temporary pleasure the, with destruction as the outcome. The other is temporary suffering with a glorious outcome. 
And friend, that is, that is the hope. And, and John Yates, the hymn writer, wrote, Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. And that's why Ephesians 6.16 says, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Excuse me. <coughs> Did I see them bring water to you? Thank you. Thank you, Brother Tifo, for the, the H2O. Much needed. It's what you get when you fight something off the whole week that you're getting ready to preach, right? Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. And as was already mentioned by Brother Rob, greater is he who is in us than he who's in the world. That's why faith is the victory, because our faith is not in us, it's in Christ who is in us, right? 1 John 5, 4. Here's, here's where that is found. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Faith is essentially an issue of trust. In the, you are the mo- most vulnerable when you are at the point of least trust. Right? If you are, are not trusting the Lord in that, ma- that time, Satan has his foothold. You, and, and his goal then is to, however he can, twist that to leave you discouraged, broken, disappointed, hopeless. When Christ says, man, faith is the victory that overcomes the world. You see, there are all kinds of situations when your friends maybe abandon you or exclude you because you don't want to affirm their ungodly lifestyle. How can you exercise trust? Well, in that moment, you stand firm and you keep going. You don't lose hope because you stand firm on the promise that God will never leave you or forsake you. When your teacher or professor insists that you accept a godless, unbiblical worldview, or your culture does, you stand firm, you work harder than ever, and you trust God that he ultimately holds your future in his hands, not your teacher, not your professor, not your boss, and not your politicians. Even as a church, when the government one day, and who knows likely soon, threatens to withdraw tax exemption status from your church unless you bend your knee to affirm an unbiblical view of male and female or to support and pay for the taking of human life in the womb, we will stand vigorously firm upon the word of the Creator God. And we may suffer for it. The amen you just gave may not be so easy in that day. Because it may come not just with that, but as it has in Canada, it may come with imprisonment. So friends, this suffering is not just some sort of hypothetical. It is real, and it's being experienced. We had a young lady just a few years ago at Purdue University, this is years past, who gave a speech and stood up for the issue of life in the womb. And she was physically attacked as she left the room. This is not a maybe. This is not something that could be. This is real. And so, friend, how do we do that? We stand vigorously firm on trusting God and saying, Lord, this is horrible. I don't like this. I don't enjoy this. But, Lord, I trust you. I trust you. Over and over, in situation after situation, the believer, all, for believers all over the world, the call is to stand firm in the faith. Resistance is not futile. Resistance is essential. And 
the beautiful thing is resistance in this way is a, has a redemptive witness. You see, when we stand firm in the faith, not just going after people, not giving up, not being overcome with discouragement, but when we stand firm in the joy of Christ, our hope in Him, not some sort of silly kind of joy, but a confident joy saying, man, I, I don't understand this, I don't get this, but I am confident of this very thing that, that I can trust Him. I can trust Him, and that's all I know to do. And in that time, a watching world who may be among the very persecutors sees someone who, instead of lashing out, is praying for their enemies, who is being kind to their enemies, who is loving their enemies. You see, as one author recently wrote, the, the believer, the believer is one person who is not allowed to hate anyone, including those who persecute you and make life miserable and suffering for you. And so the, we, how do we do that? We do that in faith, going, Lord, they're yours to deal with. Lord, you save them, do whatever you got to do. But, but Lord, that's not my business. My job is to love them. My job is to be kind to them, to pray for them. So how do we, as believers, endure suffering in faith? How do we do that? with a confident hope, with a confident looking forward. And we come to this verse 10 and verse 11 that I think Chris sort of whet your appetite for a bit last week. And in verse 10, we sort of reach this crescendo of hope. And it's not a new theme, though. Like a good songwriter, he's revisiting a theme that he introduced early in the text, right? Back in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, he introduced this same, same kind of language. But he says, and after, in verse 10... And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. He comes back to this theme after you've suffered a little while. How many of you really, when you're in the middle of suffering, feels like it's a little while? If you, I've got a hangnail, Right? It seems like, oh my word, it's all I can think about. This stinking hangnail, you know, man. Oh man, it hurts. It hurts so bad, man. And, and we just get hung up in that suffering. And it could be a lifetime of hurt. And for us, man, that's a long time. 70, 80, 90 years. It's a long time. But Peter here is going, after you've suffered a little while, Peter, are you kidding? It's been a long time. It's been years. This doesn't feel like a little while. As I scan across here, I see a whole lot of faces of people who've suffered a long time. This is from the Lord. After you've suffered a little while. Friend, it's only a little while. From the perspective of the eternal God, he wants you to know, not much longer. Not much longer. Not much longer, because something's coming, right? And, it's a, and it is something so true and so confident that he uses some pretty incredible language in here. He says, the God of all grace, the one who gave you your saving grace and your sanctifying grace and your sustaining grace, 
That God who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he's the sovereign one who called you, but this is the phrase that captured me. To his eternal, he called you to his eternal glory in Christ. How confident is, is, is your future? Well, it's as confident as his glory, and it's as confident as Christ himself. It's his glory, and you are in Christ, and is Christ going to be part of the eternal glory? Oh, you bet he is. He is the name that is exalted above every name, and you are in Christ. You are sure. It is going to pass no matter how tough it is or has been or will be. You see, so no matter what the current situation may lead you to feel, the believer's future is as secure as the glory of Jesus Christ himself. That part of that verse just grabbed hold of me this week. And, and as I thought of that, I thought, what? I base so much of my life on things I'm pretty confident of. I'm, I'm from Kansas. I don't like to take a lot of risk. All right? We just aren't those people. Right? You know, you, you don't have a lot of risk opportunities out there in Kansas. But, you know, no cliffs or anything like that. But the fact of the matter is, is this is a sure thing. This is a sure thing. Satan will lead you to believe that this suffering is just going to keep on. It's just going to get worse and there's no hope and it's not going to get better in, in the afterlife. But God wants you to know that Satan's got a leash. Satan's got a time limit. The prowling lion's leash will one day be forever yanked. And you will not have a roaring lion. You see, Romans 16, 20 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And while Satan is crushed, in the words of Job, one of the greatest sufferers of all time, I know that my Redeemer lives. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote this. He said, the Christian is the one who can be certain about the ultimate even when they are most uncertain about the immediate. You see, at the end of the battle, the God of all grace, the one who's called you into his eternal glory, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. There's different ways of looking at those four things. I think that the first one is the main word, and the other three sort of describe what's happening there. <coughs> restore is the idea is to fix what is broken. Are we broken? In our suffering, are we broken? Yeah. Yeah, we're pretty broken people. But it's to bring that broken back to its origi original condition. Well, man, I've always been broken. Oh, but we're talking about the original. Back to creation. Back when God created and said, ah, oh, it is very good. That's what he's going to take us to. We've never known that. We've never experienced that. Our entire lives have been living in the midst of brokenness, and one day we won't live that way anymore. We will be in the state of very good. Now, some of us think of ourselves as very good, but I'm telling you, we will be. God will think of you as very good, right? And that's a glorious thing. And the other things under it, the confirm, strengthen, and establish, the idea of to confirm in, in spiritual knowledge, all doubting will be forever past when you see him face to face, that strengthen to turn resolutely in a certain direction. There will, at that time, there will only and forever be his power. 
No more weakness. It'll be like, man, he turns us and we are, we're there. It is like nothing else matters at that point. Right now, we get it for a moment and then we're like, squirrel, right? Man, he's, it says he's going to strengthen us. We're going we're to have all of our energy directed that way and then establish to lay a foundation, to ground, to settle. That brokenness and uncertainty will be passed because all we will know is Christ forevermore and we will stand in it and it alone. beautiful thing about this life, and as we read the pages of Scripture, is that God often brings more glory through redemption than creation. See, he created the earth, sin entered in, but what did that do? It allowed him to gloriously show himself as the redeemer, creator. It put his love on a glorious display of the black, dra- black backdrop of sin, and says, look at this. Look at this beauty. And he's doing that even in the midst of our brokenness. Don't confuse it. Don't make yourself vulnerable to the hit squad of Satan. Leaving yourself feeling discouraged, doubting, alone, but instead run in faith. You see, we have great examples of the past. I'm not going to go into them, but Joseph what God did in redeeming that situation, Naomi and Ruth, what God did to redeem that situation. I just, if you, if you don't know these stories, I encourage you this week, go Google them or go get a Bible and, and find a way to, to look up the stories. They are amazing. Job, obviously we brought him up, how God redeemed that. I, I mentioned that one. He, he started with like, it seemed like everything. God took it all away from him. And what did he do in the end? Not quite the end. He gave him himself. Job, at the end of the book, said, Man, I'd heard of you with my ear before, but now I've seen you, God. Then God restored, right? Then God restored the stuff that really didn't matter. God it often brings more glory through redemption than creation. God does restore in this life. Some of you have experienced that, Right? It's not all about just one day. He restores in this life too. Even in the hardest of situations, it may not be how you thought it would be, but God brings beauty out of the ashes and restores in this life some glorious bits of beauty as we run to him in faith and see him do things that we didn't imagine happening out of some of the most dark and difficult situations. And many of you could give testimony to that. And for that reason, we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's Paul's description. Much like Peter's description. That it's, man... Yeah, suffering, that's, that's pretty heavy. That's some hefty suffering. Oh, glory. There's nothing to compare. Friend, your suffering, it feels like unbelievable weight that is going to overwhelm you and leave you destroyed. But let me tell you, friend, the one who cares for you will not destroy you. He will restore you. He will confirm you and strengthen you. And friend, you can take that 
to the bank. That's the mentality that we must have as we go into this mindset of war. I want to just leave a, with you this morning part of a hymn that was written over 500 years ago by a brother much smarter and wiser than me. And we talked about singing it, but I just want to, I want you to just hear these lyrics in light of what we've just described. And it's Martin Luther's A Mighty Fortress. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he, God, our helper, that's an interesting description, amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great. And armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. Oh no, what do we do? Ha ha, he answers that. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name. From age to age, the same. And he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sides. Let goods and kindred go. Take it all, he says. This mortal life also, you can have it. The body they may kill, but listen to this. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And to that, Peter says, his dominion will be forever and ever. Friend, his dominion is forever. Satan's leash is short. The suffering is but for a little while. Stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the faith. Let's pray. Gracious Father, I pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts, to my heart, to us individually, and to us as a church to stand firm. No matter what may come, no matter what may already be here, we pray, God, that we would stand firm trusting you, giving you the glory as we run back to you, saying your word says, you promise, Lord God, our hope is in you. We have nothing but you. And Lord, as we stand against the wiles of the devil, Lord, you get the glory. And we have the great joy of seeing you carry us through and one day restore us fully to all that you created us to be. We pray that we would walk in confidence as we go out from this place today, not hung up on the world, not hung up on the devil, but hanging tightly to you. We pray in Jesus' name.